We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Greetings, Gator Nation, and welcome back to the podcast. We got a really fun one today. We're gonna have Scott Strickland live with us here in the studio, answering all your questions. I'm pretty stoked, James. How you doing over there? I'm doing very well as well. You know, each year we do a mail mailbag, and it's kind of started now that Scott's going to be here two Mays in a row, essentially, as we address the state of the program. You submitted a bunch of great questions, and we're looking forward to getting to them. We're going to ask Scott basically all of them, so he'll be here in studio with us, as Alan mentioned, for a while. So looking forward to this episode for sure. It is the offseason. We're going to try to bring you content, of course, that's relevant and analytical, uh, as always, if you like that content, follow us on social media, sub to us on our YouTube channel where you get the latest film breakdowns and become a patron on Patreon. Quick shout out to B-Red, our producer, and then a retirement for Bama Shane, who faithfully kicked off our YouTube channel. Alan, he edited almost all of our videos this past season. He's got a thriving executive coaching business in Alabama. Congrats to him for that. And he just doesn't have the time. So if you want to step into those shoes and become the new video editor, for the Gator Nation Football Podcast, reach out to us via any social media platform or our email address to get connected. All right, Alan, we have had some donos since we've last Let's brought go. you some content. We have a small dono from Sam Stark, who's brand new. Welcome to the patron family. Uh, we have John G. and Scotty McLean coming in with medium donos. Welcome to both of you to the patron family. And then we have a level up from Kevin Weisberger moving up to an XL Dono. Thank you so much for your support, Kevin. And still sitting on the throne is Jason Walker, sort of the off-season king here of the GNFP. And now, Alan, it is time for our Dono Legends read. $500 total support, or a lot of these were OGs and caught on early on in the Dono campaign. Here they are. The big homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, the one and only Tyo Rummery, and Craig Scarado. 
All right, Alan, before we get to Scott, let's get to our opening thoughts. As always, in between every podcast episode, things happen that we must talk about. The first one, of course, what is seemingly the biggest news. What did you make of the Jimbo Fisher versus Nick Saban throwdown showdown? The whole thing is kind of ridiculous. One, Saban is like, you know, he's all riled up, but I think he, because he feels threatened. Uh, there's also some underlying motives there for him. But the Jimbo thing cracks me up. Like, he's so disingenuous about this. Like, okay, of course you didn't actually cut checks to these players. But to say NIL wasn't the main factor in getting them there, or at least a really significant factor, is so dumb. Just say, yeah, you know, we feel like we're ahead of the game and you know, we have a great university and there's just a lot of things to offer. And this is part of the process. And we feel like, you know, we have people, our people did a great job with that. It was rather than being like, what do you mean? The money, money had nothing to do with it. I was like, no one believes that. It was crazy. It seemed like a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. You you finally have Nick Saban, like really rattled. Like he is clearly still not over the number two recruiting class. He's not happy that the boosters for A&M are opening up their wallets to an unbelievably, you know, record high level, so to speak. And here's his rival who's kind of got him. And this is the moment when you want to go do your press conference and just feel great about it. Oh, Nick said something, didn't even know. I mean, there's a million things you could have said. Uh, you know, our supporters are great. We're really fortunate to be here at AM. We plan on keeping this going. I mean, anything to like really enjoy your moment, but instead, and I get it, I get it, right? He Nick hit him where it hurts because Fisher's like, wait a minute you're doing the same kind of stuff. And now that I'm just doing it better than you, and I get it. I think what Nick Saban's really saying, Alan, is that at Alabama, they are, they are probably not engaging in the direct pay for play that A&M is. And their NIL deals are probably more by the book. And that's what he's talking about with Bryce is they didn't just offer him XYZ dollars where A&M seems to be shopping contract values. But I thought it was a poor look by Saban. And an even poorer look by Fisher when he could have really just taken the mantle there, taken it by the reins. You're on top of the world for a second. And he really got very personal, very nasty. Uh, and it shows you, obviously, look, the business of winning college football games is very serious, right? These guys uh, yeah. want to win. And it's also true that I think their personal history played into part two. Big right? time. So Big time. That, I mean, he, he let that get to him, right? That there's some animosity there. There's some friction there, I mean, to say the least. And so... I think his response was largely due to that. I mean, if it had been someone other than Saban who said that, he probably would have reacted because he seems to be thin-skinned about this. It feels like we accomplished something, and now you're sliding us or you're lowering what we did as, like, an accomplishment, which I don't, you know, whatever, just spin it the other way. But, yeah, fascinating. You never see coaches of the Saster come out firing bullets at one another. I mean, it was really incredible. It was incredible. Just to say, look at his history, look into what he's doing. He's, he's. I mean, it was very wild, reactionary, childish, not a great look, uh, but very entertaining the day it occurred. Obviously, our thread blew up with that. All right, also entertaining. And I love those of you that tweeted this to me like as soon as it happened. Thank you for this. I appreciated it. Will Levis, and if you don't know who that is, I'll forgive you. He's Kentucky's quarterback. He's the guy who eats a banana in the weirdest way ever. That's what he was famous for until a few weeks ago when a CBS draft analyst put him as the number one overall pick and the upcoming draft, number one overall pick, and multiple of you tweeted that at us and said, hey, what's going on here? 
As a refresher, I put out, which is still there, a YouTube video breaking down Kentucky and Will Levis entering into the Florida game and talking about his deficiencies, which are still there. Struggles to read the field, slow processor, and then the stuff he's good at. Great runner, super strong arm. There's things he's good at. He has somehow, in an offseason where nothing has happened, just flown up people's radar because he is a good runner and he does have a really strong arm. But shocking, maybe, is the right word here. And and he is, I want to say this. It's one thing for the CBS analyst to kind of try to make a name for himself, which I think he did by going number one. But a lot of people have Will Levis now in the top first two rounds of this draft, which feels like it came out of nowhere. Alan, right. Well, I think, I think there's two things at play here. One, he has been in a lot of first-round mocks. So one, as you said, he's a big guy. He's a really good athlete. And two, he's been playing in this system that comes from the Rams, which is, you know, of course, they just won the Super Bowl. The Rams rehired – Liam Cohen, who had been the Kentucky OC back to the Rams to replace O'Connell, who's now the coach for the Vikings. So there's all this like synergy, right? He's playing in a system that everyone wants to emulate. So that, that makes him a little more valuable, but ultimately yes. I mean, was I scared of this dude? No, he's a good player. He, I guess he has the tools. If you're looking at it like a Josh Allen type thing, Right. Let me just take the biggest, strongest, fastest dude, and I'll teach him the rest. There's some truth to that, although that doesn't always work out. See Daniel Jones of the Giants. So I think that's that's partly what's fueling it. They're hoping he's going to take a big leap this year. And if he does, he's way bigger of a dude than someone like Bryce Young, right, at Alabama, who's borderline you know, meets the metrics physically and doesn't really, but now with the expanded kind of like, okay, Kyler Murray can be a number one pick, Baker Mayfield can be a number one pick. Although that hasn't maybe worked out as well as people hope, but it's kind of crazy. Like, like I said, I wasn't scared of this guy when we played him, when I watched him, I was like, this is the number one pick in the draft, which is just kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think that's, you're hitting on the nail on the head. There is the NFL of course, always falls in love with arm talent. They fall in love with athleticism and they will take those shots more often than not, those shots do not work. He has a whole season to play. So that's my sure. comment is let's see what happens. I'll, I'll, I'll watch the film this year. We're going to play Kentucky. I'll tell you what he looks like. We'll see where he's improved. But as of right now, from the film that exists, if I am coaching an NFL team or a college football team, I see a quarterback who struggles with the skills of quarterbacking that are required to play at a high level, not only in college, but especially in the NFL. He's playing in a very quarterback-friendly system. He often only has one or two reads at most to make, and he struggled even to make those. So he has a humongous mental leap to make. You gave the example, and that's what I want to end with, and you, you did it. Great job, Alan. Josh Allen is changing the math for draft analytics. Josh Allens are so rare, there's probably really just him. A guy who struggled mightily at all the things that I would talk about on my YouTube channel, on this podcast every week, right? For for us, we'd break down quarterbacks. I'd go through it. Struggled mightily at all of those high-level skills. And all of the sudden, in one NFL offseason, transformed himself into an accomplished passer. Now, look, that is incredibly hard to do. It's incredibly rare to do. It's not something you hardly ever see. But when the NFL sees something like that, they're going to think, yes, who's the next Josh Allen? And I thought you you said that well. And he right now in this upcoming draft class is a guy that fits that kind of profile. And therefore, people are going to be hunting for that guy. Because if Josh Allen doesn't have overtime rules, perhaps he won a Super Bowl last year. Very possibly could have done that. That's how good Josh Allen is. So remains to be seen. But for now, let's see what he does this next year in college. He'll have a lot to prove. 
All right, Alan, let's talk a little bit about basketball on the opening part of the show because the momentum basketball has right now, let's just face it, is sky high, I think is the right word. Golden has now signed a top five transfer class. Filling this class, he also just signed a four-star guard in the state of Florida, the first four- or five-star player we've signed since Trey Mann in 2019. And it seems like former players are flocking to the program. Chandler Parsons, notably on social media. Now, Torian Green hired to be a player development guy coming from an NBA job. That's a big deal. 14 years as a player, NBA gig. It feels like a star couldn't be much brighter right now. How do you feel about the Gator basketball program? Well, I think he's done a lot with limited resources. And what I mean by that, when he took the job, it's not like there's a ton of high school guys left. There's a lot of people competing in that transfer space. There's not a lot of players that you necessarily want to take. So he didn't just take dudes. He took guys with upside and guys who were accomplished players. And I thought each guy he took made a lot of sense. And I could see really helping the program now and in the future. And what these weren't like, um, gosh, why I'm blanking on his name. <laughs> Uh, really skinny guy who came in the end, right at the end, has a really funny name. Anyway, if you're a basketball fan, you know what I'm talking about. I rely on you for all of um, the, uh, Gor- Gorgeous. Oh, I knew that's what you wanted, but I, yeah. Whatever. I'm blanking on you his know name. Who he is. Anyway. A, a super speculative. Yeah. Right. Just like this guy. What? You know? So I think. I don't know how it's all going to fit together. I haven't really even looked at the roster, but it's starting to make sense, right? There's some guys who've stayed. There's some guys who've come in. Seems like he's assembled enough pieces, both in the front court and the back court, to make a theoretical basketball team. And I don't know how they'll play together. We have no idea. I mean, it's like last year, just complete overhaul. But I'm excited to see what he's going to do with it. Yeah, and I think right now, I will say this right now, I think that what he's assembled on paper and the purposefulness with which this roster is constructed, and there's still one more guy they're going to get here in the next couple of weeks, this team should make the tournament. That's that's a realistic expectation. And to me, that has to be the goal, Alan. You come off not making the tournament. We were probably not going to make it the year before. The program trending down, and now you go in, and I think you immediately, with almost you know two months barely off the clock here, create a team on paper that should make a tournament. And that's a great year one. That's a great year one if that happens. Now, a lot has to happen, but I think with Golden, we said this when you and I both evaluated the hire, Alan. If Golden gets talent, I don't think there's a college basketball coach in America that doesn't think this guy can win. If he has talent, coaches will be worried about what he is capable of doing. He just has to get the talent. So for me, A-plus start so far. He's proving he can recruit in those circles. He's proving he can do those things. Now, he'll have to land a big-time high schooler, so he'll have to make that happen. That's something that remains to be seen, but... The buzz around the program already is palpable. If you get a good first year, uh, you get things going in the right direction. I think this really could go someplace. So very exciting times indeed for basketball. And of course, very exciting times for football. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what Alan and I typically talk about on this podcast. We're going to get to Scott here in just a couple seconds. But it should be noted, Alan, let's visit just for a minute here football. There's still some people that are worried about recruiting and where we are and what we should be at and what should be happening. Uh I'm going to say what I always say before I get your comments, which is one, recruiting really is only going to matter when you get to the signing days. But two, in the near term, what you want to look for is smoke. And Florida is generating a tremendous amount of smoke. If you're a salesperson, if you're watching The Office and you're Dwight Schrute, you're talking about a pipeline. Florida is developing a tremendous pipeline. It has not been since Urban Meyer 
that we've had this many four and five stars put Florida in their top five, their top eight, their top three. It just hasn't happened. And we're only into month five, right? So if you keep getting that many players in your top five, it's a numbers game. You're going to start landing more of them. Uh, Now he still has to do this. I'm not going to anoint him a recruiting champion, as you've heard me say every year with our coaches until the dust settles. But the signs, the smoke is there. There's a lot of smoke out in the sky. There's a lot of orange and blue smoke floating around. And that's going to matter, I think, when we get further into this cycle. Yeah, I think so. The timeline is so weird right now with NILs and collectives, like matching that up. And do people move at a different pace because they're shopping more of those things? So I don't know if you could look at a year before and be like, you should have this many recruits in place at this time. I don't know if that metric still holds. I think it's going to a lot of this is going to happen right around signing day would be my anticipation. And there'll be some movement at the beginning of the school year. um, Like there traditionally has, but yeah, as you said, if you look at who Florida's targeting, like it's a much different kind of caliber player. So we're still taking, we took a three-star offensive lineman. That's fine. You know, well, that's but, all we took for a while. Yes, exactly. It's kind of funny to watch people freak out about that when that was like all we were taking for years. Right. And I think part. that's what people are afraid of. That that's going to be the norm. Now, again, if we fill out the class of those type of people, then we but, would be, you know, in trouble. But with the amount of linemen that I think they were hoping to sign, there, there just physically aren't that many four and five star offensive linemen. There so, are very few. Yeah. Correct. You're going to, you're going to take some vast majority of offensive linemen are three star guys. So you need to evaluate that position well. But, we are in we are in on four and five star guys. So if a couple of those guys come in, of course you're gonna have some three star guys. Now it's just I think we're scarred from that previous process and rightfully so. I think patience is required here, but you know, with skepticism, right? I think Florida fans should not be hitting the panic button, but you know, he's got a Billy Napier's gotta prove that he can do it. Yes, you must prove it. Correct. Nothing can be settled right now. If you're worried about where the recruiting is going, it's too soon for that, especially given the signs that are there. If you think he's going to be a top five recruiter, it's too soon for that. He has to prove that. One thing we can say, I think, about the football program, we both totally agree on here. The culture is changing in the most positive possible ways. Now, this always happens with a new coach. You're going to get all the new buzz and everything is great. And the new way is better than the old ways. But what is being said this time around is definitely different. And I want to make one comment here that really stuck out to me. In a world where creating unity, creating discipline on a college football team is seemingly harder than ever. And there's a quote where, you know, some of the Gator players are wearing baggy jerseys that were outside the spectrum of what Napier wants to have happen. Napier's a little bit older school was sort of still the style element. I want you to look like a team, act like a team, be professional to a certain degree. And obviously what he did was he had the coaches make good on the discipline threat of saying, hey, you can't do this. And they cut those jerseys up into like little halter tops and made them wear those right while playing. Now that can tremendously backfire. If people have not bought into your program, and you attempt to do something like that, that can be one of those things where the players are like, nope, I'm just not going to do that. Coach is not going to make a fool out of me, and I am not buying into this stuff. I will do what I want. And instead, by all accounts, it seems like the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. The next day, they all come wearing their proper jerseys, and they're buying into what's happening. Now, of course, they haven't played any games yet. They haven't taken any losses yet. That's when that stuff will happen. I'm not doing that anymore. I'll do what I want. But I will say the culture build, as far as the reports go, could not be better from individual players, from people we know inside the program, from pretty much anyone 
it's hard to find someone who's saying this culture that's being built feels special. These are all good signs. Will it translate to wins and losses? We will wait and see. But I think it's safe to say, Alan, the football program is trending up. The basketball program is trending up. And we'll see what happens during the seasons. But as of right now, the stock on both those, I think, are are up for sure. Yeah, a lot of room for hope and optimism. And again, those are worth a lot in college athletics where optics is an important part of what you're doing because it is a recruiting thing. It's not the NFL where you're like, we're going to close up everything and we can just, we'll show you when we show you, right? That there's momentum is a good thing. And Florida basketball football has that currently. We'll see if they can maintain it. Indeed we will. All right. With that, Alan, get us to our guest. Okay, here we go. Live here with Scott Strickland, the athletic director, of course, at the University of Florida. Scott, thanks so much for coming over and doing this with us. Yeah, Alan, appreciate it. It's good to be with you and James. And um, first time you guys have invited me to do it in person. So it's it's uh, done it over the phone in the past. It's kind of nice to be in the flesh and um, – yeah, number one, get to see your really impressive studio set up here and, and all the high tech uh, radio equipment that you have. Uh, this is uh, for those listening. Uh, you you should have a lot of confidence in everything that James and Alan uh, that they do for this podcast because this is a pretty impressive setup. And, I, <laughs> and, and I, there's some there's a, the, we're in a room at uh, that has some. Some things that just are just kind of random, but like the, the actual setup is pretty impressive. So well done, guys. Thank you. Of course. That's well, a great description. We're yes. in a room where some things are random. Totally. True. I didn't know how else but to say setup, it. It's great. No, it's great. It's really great. And we'll leave that mysterious as to what random things are here. Sure. But that's a great description. Let, let them, you know, imagine the various things that might be in here. But well, let, let me just jump in with maybe a broad question here for you. You've been athletic director for quite a while now, both here and Mississippi State. So what's just the best part and maybe the worst part of being athletic director? Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of the same thing. The, um, the passion and the excitement and the energy you get from not only the competition in the games, but the way fans react to that is, is pretty special. But obviously, sometimes that can be really challenging as well. So, the, you know, the best thing about college athletics is is that that passion, and sometimes the worst thing is that passion. Um, you got to you got to learn how to balance that and uh, not keep you know not get too high when the things are going well, and and then you know not get too low when when things aren't going maybe like they should, and people are yelling and screaming and losing their head. You got to kind of keep an even keel there. That is totally true. And I, I mean, I think it's what we all love about college sports is people are not rational about it. There's a love that is intrinsic and runs deep. And, of course, yeah, that, that tends to still spill over in some unhealthy ways as well. Uh, well, this is kind of a newsy thing. This just got announced, I guess, this past week. But Mick Hubert, of course, yeah. announced his retirement, which I think for all of us came out of nowhere – uh, like, wow. I mean, I guess we all knew that at some point he's not going to do all the Gator football and basketball games. But, I mean, I can't really remember watching Gator or listening, I guess, to Gator football and basketball without him. So, yeah, just thoughts on that moment for you and then maybe even the process of replacing him. Obviously, we're going to have to have somebody new in there. I don't know where you're at with that, if that news is 
kind of took you by surprise as well. I was very surprised. Mick uh, put a appointment on my calendar a Friday afternoon a couple weeks ago and for a Monday morning and didn't have any idea what that was about. It's not common. I see I see Mick at our sporting events and other things that go around go on around the UAA, but very rarely has he asked to come see me. And so in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what you know, what's going on? Is is something bothering him? Um, maybe this is about his future. But even then, you're thinking, you know, maybe he's want to do it, wants to do it for another year. And he walked in and said, "Hey, nothing's wrong. I'm not mad." It's just time, and I'm going to work these three baseball games for the SEC Network Plus this weekend, and that's it. And I was like, wow. Come on, Mick, don't you want to do another year? Let us, you know, let everybody kind of send you off and, you know, pat you on the back and, and have a farewell tour. He said, that's, he said, that's the last thing I want to do. I appreciate everything. I, you know, I love being a Gator. But, uh, and, he, and he even said, I can't really tell you why, other than it's just in my gut. I feel like the Lord's leading me to go do something else. And, to his credit, he's walking away when he still has, has his fastball. We all yeah. have seen people in that position who have done it for a long, long time, and, and maybe they hang on a few years later and uh, later than they should. And because you know of their status and and their, uh, their the nature of being the iconic broadcaster, nobody really wants to be the one to tell them, "Hey, it's time." And so certainly Mick still at the top of his game does a super job works hard at it still to this day doesn't doesn't you can just tell when you listen to his broadcast he's not mailing it in which is a huge credit to him and the kind of person he is so yeah well obviously he leaves really big shoes to fill and we're uh we we're starting that process we have some people internally that'll help me with that uh, people in our communications team and in our broadcast group that'll help us kind of look at who potential candidates could be and we're going to look uh, local. We're going to look national. We're going to, you know, uh, hopefully have a really good pool of potential replacements. Um, you know, the, the 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 interesting thing about this, you know, when you hire a coach, you're under the gun because what's the most important thing right now or forever in college athletics is recruiting, right? And you always have a recruiting timeline. So you want to get a hire done as quick as possible because you want it to have as minimal impact on recruiting as, as possible. Well, we we don't have a recruiting to worry about with this position, and we don't have a football game for another two and a half months. So we have a little bit of time. You'd like to have somebody in place sometime this summer so they can kind of get their feet on the ground and, and get yeah. comfortable. But uh, we'll be curious to see what kind of uh, um, interest we get. I, this is uh, There's not very many of these jobs out there. There are a lot of really good broadcasters uh, available and the medium of radio has changed a little bit. You know, when Mick came up, not every game was on TV and people really developed a relationship with their, their home team broadcaster. And Mick did a great job of that. Uh, with today with, with every football and basketball game being, being on TV, still an important role. We're going to take it very seriously. We want to get the best we can get, but it's just, it's just a different position than it, than it was when, when Mick took over. And I think because of that and just also the very nature of it takes a while to kind of get comfortable with someone in that chair, there's going to be an adjustment period. You know, Mick tells the story that you know, he came in 89 and it wasn't until the, the Chris Doring touchdown against Kentucky in 93 that he felt like he was embraced as the voice of the Gators. And he'd been doing it for four years at that point. So there's just it just takes time. So there's going to be a transition, but 
it'll it'll I'm excited to not I'm not excited that Mick's leaving. I'm really sad about that, but it, it'll be exciting to be able to bring somebody else in really talented and let them kind of develop their own uh, stature here among Gator Nation. For sure. I mean, that is, like you said, big shoes to fill because people have such a strong association with that that the next person is going to be different by default. And so, right. You know, it's uh, interesting. I'm used to taking used to. When you think about it, uh, the, the probably the, the, the most visibility today's radio play-by-play announcers get is on the social media highlight of the great play where the, where the radio call is placed over Chris Chioza's shot or, you know, uh, Austin uh, Langworthy's home run in the super regional or right. you know, something like that. That's, that's going to be where whoever this person ends up being um, that that's where they're going to uh, really, I think, introduce themselves to Gator Nation when we have that magical moment and their radio call is going to be the soundtrack for it. Just like mix has been for the last 33 years. Yeah, that's so well said. And, and growing up a baseball guy, baseball sort of had the the market cornered on the the home broadcaster. There's so many games you often listen while doing something. But I think what you just said is really the future, and that's what's happening, is your voice gets overlaid over the clip, and then people do get to know you that way. Mix had a lot of those notable ones. And, of course, I think for all of us it's going to feel pretty weird when you hear that new voice, um, especially if you're under 40. You've only really heard Mix voice your whole life. Uh, but, but yeah, it, you know, Mick's done, I think a remarkable job. And I think I really appreciate a Homer and it's hard. I think personally, having worked for the athletic department, it's hard to keep caring for your team when it's your job professionally. And I've always felt like Mick really cares about Florida winning. And I've always cherished that because I think that is actually easier said than done when you're there every day broadcasting, not to just make it your job and you don't really care if you win or lose, but he does, he does care. I felt like he always cared. And I think that's something I'll remember about Mick for sure. Okay. Let's move on to our first kind of big topic here. No surprise. The thing that's dominating news everywhere in college football is NIL. Um, it's funny cause we asked for questions and then there's a little bit of a dust up. I don't know. Maybe you guys heard about <laughs> a couple high profile coaches having a few words so we won't get into that fully, but yeah, just I think Alexandra asked this question. And I'll I'll kind of paraphrase it here, but like, what do you see as really the pros and cons of NIL for Florida specifically? You know, there's so much that is still being learned about this space. It's hard to put a particular Florida spin on it, other than. The, the notion that, uh, you know, the model's changing. And this is a different model, having student athletes with the ability to go out in the free market and generate what um, ostensibly is, is marketing dollars, but we all know that that's, it's being um, transitioned to their, their market value as an athlete in a lot of cases. That's a totally different model. What I would say where the Gators are concerned is – what we were we had a chance to be really successful in the model before this because we're in the state of Florida, 21 million people. We have a top five public university. We have a well-resourced athletic program that was able to attract high-end, talented athletes and coaches. I don't think that's going to change in the new model. So I don't really think it has an impact on 
our ability to be successful. If anything, I think we're well positioned, probably more so than a lot of places, to to really take advantage of whatever might be out there. Our athletes certainly can because we have 450,000 living alumni and you're competing against schools that have half that number or less. And there's a lot of wealthy people out there who have successful businesses who have an opportunity to, uh, you know, include their athletes in their, their marketing platforms and benefit themselves and the athletes at the same time. So the Gators are, the Gators are going to be really well positioned either way. Obviously the athletes get a chance to make some money. So that's a benefit to them. And, the, the only negative, I say the only negative, the significant negative is how do you prevent it from being a, a de facto pay-for-play recruiting inducement? I don't know of an answer for that. And so, you know, we're going to follow the rules. We're, we're going to expect people who are in, a, in the NIL space not to have conversations with recruits. We're going to, if we find someone doing that, we will take steps to disassociate them. But once they're on our campus and they're a student athlete at the University of Florida, they have a lot of opportunities in the NIL space. And we want to do everything we can to support, educate, and, and um, promote their ability to take advantage of the, 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 that NIL opportunity. So there's a lot of questions in here from Alexandra. There's also from Mark and a few others about regulation. Now, this is a, a tough one because it – it's not clear like what kind of regulation that could be, but do you foresee an attempt at regulation? And do you have an opinion on what that might look like? I don't know what it could look like given for one thing, the NCAA can't do it. And the reason the NCAA can't do it is Supreme court said, you're not allowed to the Supreme court last year in the Austin ruling very clearly said, be careful about limiting benefits to student athletes. Right. You're, you're not, um, um, you're, you have to follow the Sherman Act, right? You're not exempt from, from antitrust laws that exist in our country. And so right there, what that means is you, you, you can't collectively go out as a national organization and say, put these, put these walls in place to prevent athletes from generating money off their name, image, and likeness, or other things potentially. So the NCAA is not going to be able to do it. The NCAA can put things in place about, hey, if we hear that this is going, this is impacting, that we have evidence, direct evidence, that this is being used in recruiting, they can penalize a school. They can do that. Uh, they, 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 you keep hearing noise that they are starting to look at things and that they want to make some examples of people. I have no idea. But the only regulation can come from either Congress or – and this is a big whole rabbit hole that we'd be going down. But if you made athletes employees and they formed an organization that you could collectively bargain with, you could put regulation in place. But those are really the only two paths you have is congressional action to come in and say Congress could pass something that says these are the rules around college athletics. It's, it is exempt from the Sherman Act. Congress could say that college athletics is exempt from antitrust laws. They've not done that, but they could. Short of that, the only other option you have, the only, well, the only two options. One is an unfettered open marketplace, which is what we're living through right now, or some kind of association representing the student athletes that that schools collectively bargain with, or conferences collectively bargain with. That has a whole list of issues that I don't quite understand myself, related to labor law and 
you know, there's a <laughs> there's a lot of challenges with uh, on university settings about turning students into employees. That is, there's there's a lot of work to be done before we end up in, going down that path. Maybe another kind of technical question here. So each state currently has potentially different laws. Some states have no laws. Is there anything about the state of Florida's laws that's, I don't know, maybe more restrictive or that you would like to see change to be more in line with what other people are doing? There is not. One thing that the Florida law has in place that I, that other states are getting away from, but I actually think the Florida law has um, has merit to it, is this idea that the school or the institution cannot cause the compensation. So, James, you're a business owner. I'm a coach. Alan, you're an athlete. Of course I am. I can, you look like the athlete in the group. I could, I could introduce you to James, a business owner. James could come to me and say, hey, I'm looking for, uh, you know, someone that, that, you know, has this kind of profile. Or I've noticed Alan, this, you know, that Alan's this player that I think has a good profile. I'd like to use him in name, image, and likeness opportunity. I can introduce you to, I can give you each other numbers, each other phone numbers and all that kind of stuff. What I can't do is say, hey, James, you need to pay Alan X amount of dollars. That's what the state law of Florida says. The reason I like, some other states don't have that rule in place. The reason I like that is I'm, I think you open yourself up as an institution to some Title IX issues if you're directing the, the dollars flowing through name, image, and likeness. Interesting. And main, at some point, my guess is one of those states, one of the schools in a state that doesn't have that provision about the school not being able to cause compensation, there's going to be a Title IX issue brought up there. It will be interesting to see how that gets played out. I really don't want the University of Florida to be the the test case there. So, and I, but I will say, I have not seen. We have a lot of athletes on our campus who have some healthy name, image, and likeness deals, and it's not just football players. We have gymnasts, we have softball players, we have baseball players. I mean, we have a, swimmers, we have a, track and field athletes, we have a lot of athletes who have taken advantage of of the law that changed last summer, and. The, the school has not caused any of that compensation, but there seems to be a very healthy market out there that um, is is being taken advantage of. And so I don't I don't see how that rule is preventing our student athletes from engaging and enjoying the benefits of name, image, and likeness legislation. But I do think it provides some Title IX protection to the institution. So there's some schools out there. Uh that are connected to people who are not just wealthy, but incredibly wealthy. So Abe Hamza, Tyler Rummer, you're asking, basically, are you or me, you think any of your peers worried that oil money or other types of things are just going to come in and dominate to the level that is maybe unsustainable? I, I don't have that fear for a couple of reasons. Um, one of which is, Every, every, there's going to be opportunities at every school for kids to really enjoy benefits at a high level, especially the higher profile kids. Um, Florida has a lot of really wealthy alumni. So that doesn't, I don't ever worry that we're not going to be in position to be competitive if, if something comes to that. But again, I'm not, I think a lot of the stuff you read and hear about I take a lot of it with a grain of salt. I'm not saying none of it's true. 
I'm saying I, I'm not sure if it's all happening the way it's coming across in news reports or it's being described. And you got to think about even even go back to think about who would be benefiting from some of the stuff that's getting out there, getting out there. Um, True. My guess is I don't know this for a fact, but I have a strong suspicion that there are some agents out there who are putting a lot of this information out there that may or may not be completely accurate in an effort to create a market for themselves. Um, Eventually markets normalize all markets normalize. We're at the very early stages of a totally new market and it is a bit of a roller coaster. But if you look at economics, how these things work over time, this will normalize. And when people make bad decisions, with their investments, they people pay attention to that, and others, the market will respond accordingly. And people who make wise decisions, if they benefit from, they will probably benefit from that, and the market will notice, and the market will respond accordingly. Does that make any sense? What yeah, I'm totally. Right I think I would agree with that. I think they were we're at the front end of this thing, so even trying to predict how it might go and at what volume and for what length of time before that takes to normalize is. Difficult to prognosticate. Okay, uh, another question from in this space. Uh, this is from Lane Kiffin. And he <laughs> says, "How are we not a professional sport? What is the difference? Players are making money. They can opt into free agency. We're a professional sport, and they are professional players. Contracted employees without contracts." Response to our our dear listener Lane Kiffin here. For one thing, how, that's pretty cool that Lane has time to to listen yeah. to your podcast. Right. Well, he actually just said this today which was interesting. Um, So we figured this would be a great way to close kind of the NIL space because he's been maybe, I don't want to say the champion, but the champion of kind of calling out what's, what's happening as it's happening and he's involved in it. So yeah, I think here he's gone the furthest he's gone to say who's, how are we not a professional sport? And so that's, I think a good question. He had, he had another quote in that article. I read it this morning where he said, we're pretending as if they all have the same value because we're giving them all the same scholarship. And really, if you want to drill down into what is happening right now, that that is the crux of the matter, that the NCAA has decided a long time ago, generations ago, college athletics decided that everybody had the same value. And we know that's not the case because we know that there have been schools that have, have paid illicitly under the table because what happens when – in, in true economics is market the markets are going to do what markets do right you're not going to be able to stop people who have different values from the market finding ways to to reward that value whether what's happened traditionally in the NCAA is that's been under the table now you have a way above the table through NIL to do some of these things but the reason we're in this situation is because the NCAA has a has has a a system that treats everybody the same, whether they have the same value or not. And when you get down to it, that's really at the core of the issue. So, you know, Coach uh, Kiffin's talking about professionalization. That goes back to the employment piece, which is really complex. That is, it's not as simple to say professionalize them all. It's, I'm telling you, it is, it is, it's going to take a long time for college athletics to work its way down that path and do so in a way that, uh, when you consider 
Title IX and you consider all the different states and all the different laws and all these state entities, you got to realize that in pro sports, the, the, the team, the sports team is a private business, right? And, and so, yes, they're going to hire professionals. The University of Florida is a state-owned entity. It's a state-run institution. And a vast majority of college athletic programs are the same way, or at institutions that are public institutions, obviously. So it's, it's, it's not as simple to say they're professional. But Lane's right in that we have, we have a system that says everybody has the same value, and that's just not reality. And as we look into reform, taking this system that exists the way it does, we've talked about market inefficiency, market efficiency, right? Markets are the most effective way to get to the right price for something. That's why socialist and communist systems throughout time are extremely inefficient at delivering goods to people. And free markets are very efficient. And you mentioned the under the table stuff that's gone on uh, for a long time to reward people who perhaps have value to schools winning. Uh, And we look at reform. Let's separate something here that I think is what led to the Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban crux. People hoped NIL was going to be like what you mentioned, what we possibly see with gymnasts and some other athletes that are not necessarily having someone pay for them to come play. But in college football, this pay for play seems to be what maybe Nick Saban was hinting at is, hey, if you come to my school, we'll we'll do what you said earlier. Look, we're going to give you opportunities to make NIL money. But to pay you to come to our school, to get into a contract negotiation where we're going to give you what you want to come to our school is perhaps not the intent of the NIL. Is there any way to to separate or delineate this pay-for-play versus a company actually doing what you had said earlier? It's really challenging, James. There may be. I don't have a clear answer for you there, to be honest with you, and I'm not sure who does. I, I do want to go back, though, because you talk about Coach Saban, Coach Fisher, Lane, um, and you see a lot of coaches coming out and talking about this and sounding alarm bells. And I wonder if a lot of that rhetoric isn't simply a a signaling to their own fan base, a call to action, if you will. And when I read that article today from Lane Kiffin, I had the thought in the back of my mind, he's trying to send a message. And, and the message isn't to – 129 other schools, he's sending the message to, to Ole Miss supporters. And again, Coach, Coach Saban's an incredibly bright guy. But my guess is that initial comment he made was probably uh, intended for a certain audience. And so, and, and again, it kind of creates an echo chamber, right? I, I, I hear this, I heard this kid got that. And so now I'm, I'm kind of concerned. I need to make sure other people are as concerned as I am and are prepared to step up if we need them to. And I need to figure a way to communicate to that, that to them. I don't know. What do you think, James? No, I think that's true. And I think that's, what, that's where we get to the heart of this. And this is the perfect lead into then the next question is, do we think that this behavior is good for the, the college athletes, the institutions, everyone involved. Essentially, I've likened it to uh, an art museum, right? Art museums function, I think, much like nowadays college athletic departments do with regards to football and perhaps basketball, and that art has an intangible value. It's whatever somebody thinks it's worth. And if I want to have the world's best art museum and I can get a bunch of billionaires to fund it, then we can buy the art. We can win all the auctions. We can collect all the stuff we need. And people could argue, well, that's unfair, right? It means more to them, so to speak. 
um, and we'll collect all of those pieces and we'll pay the highest price. And, and there's not a, a profit motive for that. Museums don't make money. The majority of them lose a lot of money. They're a societal benefit or because people think it matters. I think football's become a similar way. To fan bases, it means more than ROI. Uh, it's certainly not a sound investment in a lot of regards to give an 18-year-old $3 million when he's unproven, is unlikely, unlikely to make it to the NFL, and is you know one of 85 guys. But it means something to them that their art museum, so to speak, is going to become better than others. So the question is, is it good to have this sort of uh, open market bidding warfare that's not really a free market because in, in this case the employer which is not an employer the school has no real power to create rules that you would have in a free market we're going to say well here's how long you have to stay here here's what your contract right. says I mean there's there's things you could do to to balance it out so does this feel good to have maybe like what you're saying you have coaches openly sort of hey, we're going to need more resources. We're going to need you to open up your wallet more. Is this a good look? Is this a good thing for the future of college athletics? You, you want to be careful when you answer this question because is it's it's good for the young people that are seeing a financial benefit because they have some notoriety. So I, you got to make sure that we're, you know, that's not bad. However, it is it speaks to the the paradox that has always been college athletics. So, you know, you talked about socialist um, environments and the economies. That's a great illustration. For years, college athletics, when it dealt with players, we've had a socialist system. Not just that everybody's going to have the same scholarship, but we're going to take the money that football, men's basketball makes, and we're going to use that and spread the wealth over here to these other sports to give these kids opportunities, which is a – there's a lot of good that comes from that, but it's totally un-American, right? It's it's you wouldn't run a business that way, and so that speaks to we're you know college athletics is a not-for-profit business, meaning that we don't have we're not trying to turn a profit at the end of the year. We're trying to break even and spend all the money we can on stuff that's going to help us go be better the next time, and that is that is not a typical American business model, but. It has existed this way, but at the same time that's going on, the people who are helping run the system, coaches, athletic directors, are in a completely free market and open economic system. So you think about just how um, the optics of that, how uncomfortable that is, and I'm, I'm I've benefited from that, so I'll I'll admit that, right? And I think every other uh, well-paid, resource coach out there would say the same thing. But it's we've had this. So so this is the first time we've had what you described as kind of this this wholesome university education based system. And now people are out here being able to benefit financially. That's gone on. It's it's really complex. You know, the whole thing about supporting all these other sports. Another part of this that that I don't know if people in America care about this or not, but we have a great Olympic program in this country. Colleges and universities in Division One, maybe all divisions, spend five and a half billion dollars a year on Olympic sports. Wow. Not football, you know, not not football. Five and a half billion a year on Olympic sports, and America is the only industrialized nation, I believe, whose federal government does not subsidize its Olympic program directly. And the reason it doesn't have to do that. Is because we have this. We're the only country that has combined 
higher education and athletics in this in this training program, if you will. And it's the envy of the world where the Olympic movement is concerned. Other countries talk to people at Team USA, uh, people at Colorado Springs who run our training center, and they are they are so jealous of the collegiate model. But that collegiate model exists because we've taken all this money from football and we put it into swim and dive and we put it in track and field and we put it in gymnastics and all these other programs that have allowed Team USA, even though we don't, we're not the most populous nation, we often win the medal count or do really well in the medal count, especially in the summer games. And the reason that exists is because of this ecosystem. So if you follow the Supreme Court thing ruling last summer, where basically it's you, you've got to, you are not exempt from antitrust laws, college athletics, so you've got to operate as an open market. If you follow that to its natural conclusion, there are going to be sports being eliminated. There are going to be a lot, some athletes in the sports that are not eliminated have a lot more benefits than they did before. But there are going to be sports eliminated, and it is going to undermine potentially the, the Olympic movement in America. So, again, that's just no one's thinking about that. No one's talking about that. But that is a reality. And the people who run the United States Olympic Committee, that is a, they are scared to death about that. I'm, wow. I'm on one of their committees, and the, I'm, they talk about that all the time. It is a, there are alarm bells going off in that committee. So, again, when you talk about NIL for a college quarterback – now we're talking about the Olympic movement. And I mean, just think about the ripple effects in Title IX. That's when I, when I, at the very beginning, when I talked about how complex some of these issues are, it is, I don't know if there's ever been something that has this been this layered and have this many imperfect parts of it. And there's seemingly no clear answers. Yeah. And that's, and that's really something that, that reminds me of obviously my day to day life as an investor. Uh, I subscribe to something called the three body problem. And if I know everything about, item a and everything about item b i cannot predict what's going to happen with item c essentially in a complex and chaotic environment you just cannot predict what's going to happen with that third variable and it's uh you know widely known but a lot of people run into issues when they know everything about a and b and they think this will fix with c but it's too it's too complicated and i think that's what we're describing here the more you peel back the curtain you more you see these things i think the best way to solve it is to allow a free market to occur and the reality is the free market has to go both ways, like we've talked about. And we're going to talk about some future stuff um, in a minute. But if you look at college sports and you look at pro sports, like pro sports exists because it has a special exemption to exist as a non-competitive entity. What I mean by that is the salary cap is that's on, not— That's only baseball. So right, baseball is the only sport that has the, the antitrust exemption. The antitrust football. exemption because they can allow different salaries and they can allow max. But in football, I mean, that's not a realistic competitive environment. They're restraining themselves artificially. Through their collective bargaining. Through their collective bargaining. And that's what you're getting at. And that's right. that's the part that I think if you're always wondering, that seems like the simple solution. That is the simple solution because it works in other sports. But it's wildly complicated to do it, what you mentioned, in a college landscape where you have public institutions, you have private institutions, you have different state, you have a million different things going right. on. And that's why you can't just create it. But even then you got to think to yourself, think of what's like the NFL. What has a salary cap? Is Amazon restrained by a salary cap when they compete with anyone else? No, they can pay whatever they want for whoever they want. And that's right. why they become so good. So I think what I want to say is sports exists in a special place where we want some parity because we like to see competitors sort of making the difference but true competition in a market leads to generally one or two participants being by far the best and that's the result that you get and that's that's best for society but sports has existed differently 
And uh, that that's, again, we could spend hours talking about that. And that's what makes this, I think, special and complicated is you really don't want that result in sports. You'd rather have 20, 30, 40 teams that have some rule set. And then you can say the best team won because of ingenuity, creativity. They won on a more level sporting field. Right. Um, rather than dominating, which also requires ingenuity and complexity and skill set. But then you just sort of become so good that it's not compelling from an entertainment standpoint. So um, sidebar there, a lot of stuff. But what I want to get to now is this question, which I think is very interesting. We've gotten asked this so often, but I want to ask you because I know that you know a little bit about this. The question I'm getting from Nick Isaac and and Dean Zubanakis is, how does the NIL potentially affect the three-year test for hiring coaches, or in your case, whatever your timetable would be for hiring a coach, does that change how long you might give a coach because things are just different getting established? Or is it still kind of the same timetable? It's a great question that I think you almost have to have a three-year sample size or whatever your timeline is before you can truly answer it to know what that impact was and understand how it impacted rosters, how it impacted not only the the uh, the putting together of a roster, but how does an interact? How does a, is there any different difference going forward in how rosters interact with one another in this new world we're in? It's a great question. I don't I don't I, I don't have an answer for that. It will be interesting to see whether it shortens that curve. Maybe maybe it creates some irregularities that in some cases actually lengthens the curve. It's fascinating. I don't know. Yeah, we don't know either. We've, what do you think? We've, What's we've, your gut tell you? My gut tells me, I, I would say that if I was an AD, I'd keep it the same because what's really interesting, the more a free market is allowed to operate, and again, we don't have one now. We've gone to great lengths to say that it's close in some regards, not in others. The faster innovation occurs. And that often throughout time has really confounded people. It feels like this is crazy. This is going to take longer to figure it out. But in in all actuality, the higher the rewards, the quicker you can access the reward, the better your rising stars will display that and the faster they will display that. And so my bet is now that this is the way that it is, the schools that have money will snap up the talent faster. They will display their talent faster and they will be able to show that, I think, within the same three years they would have before but there are some challenges to navigate, and that challenge is going to be, of course, resources. Now your coach that maybe could have succeeded at school XYZ may never be able to win a national title if the resources just aren't in the same hemisphere. Um, but I think, in theory, you would argue that you know the best of the best will navigate the new landscape. They will understand what needs to be done quickly, and they will do things that were not done in the past to, to realize that value. Um, so yeah. what you're talking about is being adaptable you know, and moving forward and being tactical. It is a weird moment right now where there are a lot of artificial constraints on certain people, certain states, certain jobs. Yeah, it creates a lot more variables because there's so many unknowns. Like I said, I think patience is required, but also foresight. Like what what is going to be true a year from now, three years from now? And are we more aligned then than we are now and, or whatever it might be? Absolutely. And I think that's the key, right? I think the smarter coaches are going to look at the schools they select and they're purposely going to say resources, recruiting base, my skill set, talent, and they're going to understand what they can create given the landscape better than a coach who might still be saying, man, I wish it was the way it used to be. And uh, we'll see. I think time will tell. But I would argue that history would tell us that this will just identify the better coaches even faster 
than what has happened in the past. And again, we'll see. It should be fascinating to watch, though. We can't say that definitively until we get the data right. Yeah. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Okay, let's move on to a topic that I am personally way more interested in. You don't know what I'm going to say here. I don't. Uh, <laughs> Is scheduling. So the, I don't know. I can remember when scheduling was a complicated topic and it seems kind of quaint nowadays relative to some of these other things. So, but, but still important. So go ahead. Yes. So you're right. We have to sort out some of the bigger issues, but I think for the health of both the SEC and for college football, this is something that has to get sorted out. There's already been some movement here with other conferences. I believe it's the coaches or that maybe all of the SEC is meeting in a couple weeks? Yeah, next at the uh, uh, next right week? after Memorial Day. Okay, wow, it's coming up quick here. Okay, so just some things that we can note here. Obviously, we know the weirdness. Gator Quez just noted we're playing Texas A&M for the third time with a third different coach at College Station. <laughs> they, they haven't been here, I don't believe. They've been here once. Been here once. Okay. Um, it, it would it, it might be hard to remember because the Gators didn't wear orange and blue that night. The day and M was here, so it may be uh, kind of washed from your memory. Yes, I think I did wipe that away. Thank you for reminding me, or no thanks for reminding me, I guess. Um, okay, so there's been a lot of talk. There's some proposals on the table moving to either a nine-game schedule or keeping it at eight and having some sort of permanent opponents. I don't know if you are able to tip your hand here, whether you need to keep this close to the vest for negotiations here. Do you favor a nine-game schedule? Uh, of those two options, yes. 
I think anything we can do to lean into the strength of our league and play each other more often sure. is is a benefit. The most viewed season of SEC football ever was 2020 when we had a 10-game SEC schedule. And TV ratings were down. But as far as total viewers who watched SEC football that year, it's the most viewed season ever. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, no. there were people who normally would be in the stadium. Maybe they were at home. Maybe that added to it. But the, the fact that every week you were playing SEC exclusively, SEC versus SEC, made a difference. And um, we have we have one of the two strongest conference in college athletics, especially in football. We should do everything we can to lean into that strength and to continue to show the value that all 16, soon to be 16 schools have by being members of the SEC, which is you get to play an SEC schedule. And we should make that schedule as robust as possible, in my opinion. I 100% agree. So there's, I've seen, I guess it's been reported, I don't know if this is factual or not, but that the two leading contenders for that model would be, a, I guess, in the eight, one would be a one and seven, like a one permanent opponent, seven rotating. Or I think what I would prefer, three permanent opponents, six rotating. You get a lot of crossover. You would, If you're over four years, you get to play home and away with everybody. I believe the math works out on that. The fascinating thing is, for each school, who would be those three permanent opponents? Um, again, I don't know like what you want to say in this regard, but do you already have in mind like a three permanent opponents that you would like Florida to have? I have an idea of of if if of that potential model where we might end up. Okay, and obviously Georgia is going to be a part of that. My guess is you'll have another another school that has some kind of geographic basis, and then there'll be you know probably another uh, team that has had historical strength. You know we've had LSU in the past. I don't know if it'll be LSU, but it'll probably be somebody like that from a permanent standpoint. But if you're rotating everybody more often, the permanents become less important. True. Really, the the only the only value of the of the or the really only different impact the the permits make at that point is for the tradition value of it and obviously georgian has that where we're concerned um you know before i, I think I, you know when the league went to 12 teams and went to div- split to divisions for the first time in 92 tennessee and florida had never played before right to speak of Very with any true, yeah. with any significant re- regularity and had no meaningful rivalry to speak of Florida Auburn was a big series and we kept Auburn as a permanent for a few years because for a while they had your five division teams plus two permanents plus one rotator and then they dropped that from two permanents to one permanent and we lost Florida and that and Auburn and Florida stopped playing each other regularly because of that my point is we, we've had rivalries that weren't rivalries become rivalries, and we've had schools that we used to have long-term rivalries with that we don't get to see very often anymore. If you're playing everyone and you're seeing them twice in a four-year period, who the permanent is is less important. Yes. I I put myself through this little exercise where I tried to come up with three permanent opponents for every team, and I have a limited knowledge of you know how they might other schools might feel, but it was extremely difficult. There's some obvious ones like, of course, Florida's going to play Georgia. Ole Miss is going to play Mississippi State, Alabama, and Auburn. There's some schools that, like Auburn, everybody would like to play. 
It feels like everybody has some kind of thing with Auburn. And then it's like Missouri. I mean, who cares about Missouri? Right. So I, I found like half of it like fit into place. And the other half was like really difficult and felt like I have no idea how they're going to like put this together. Do you expect it to be a contentious conversation? I don't. My guess is everybody will get something they want out of this and everybody will get something they just as soon not have out of this. And it'll probably all come out in the wash. And because the fact what I just said about if if we ha- if we're playing everybody more frequently anyway, it's not quite as important. Okay. Yeah, and amen to that. I mean, talk about what you want to see as a fan. Being able to play every SEC team within you know a four year period guaranteed home. That's 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 a dream. That's amazing. For sure, it sounds amazing. As someone who you know has gone to games for a long time, that stretch of like oh South Carolina, Kentucky, especially if they're not good. Just like, okay, I'm, I'm going, but I'm way less excited about it than like much more variety on the schedule. So I think this has long been coming. And yeah, I think there's part of me that's like, okay, I'm averse to changing the things that have been historically like significant, but it doesn't go back that far. These divisions haven't been around since, you know, the Garden of Eden or anything yeah. like that. And so. it's, it's an all season portfolio, so to speak. You don't know who's going to be really good in the future per se, but this guarantees you'll play them at right. some point. And, and that's what you want. The West was a laughing stock for a long time. True. It's not now, but you can't predict that. And this will ensure that you're going to have a chance to play against the best teams. And I think it eliminates some of that. You know, you look at the big 10, they have one division that is way stronger and probably would always be, in some sense. Now you just mentioned the West being down a few, you know, in the nineties, but yeah, it gets you out of that locked into these like immovable kind of structures. Okay. Uh, Bryce Woolley, just, this is a little bit of future question. So Oklahoma, Texas merging into SEC. Do you have just any broad thoughts about how that's going to affect the SEC and maybe college football in general? Like that maybe it wasn't, of course, it'll be different. There'll be different conferences, but just anything that strikes you is like this will be an effect that I think is pretty profound. It really, it really ties in to the the idea that these conferences are really competing in a marketplace with one another against one another, and so as you're talking about James, your comment about. Um, how real markets work and in, in the business world and you have, you know, the strong separating them, one or two strong companies separate themselves in a marketplace from everybody else. You don't want that in with teams competing against each other, but the, because of court decisions and just the, the nature of the role that the conferences play for all these teams, that has kind of happened where these, you know, the SEC and the big 10 are the dominant conferences. And that is only going to continue to, those two are going to continue to separate themselves. And so Texas and Oklahoma joined the SEC because they saw this and they were not in a, in a position with an affiliation that they thought was going to benefit them. And they wanted to join the stronger conference. And in, and in turn, it makes that conference even stronger, right? The SEC is going to be even stronger now with Texas and Oklahoma. I think I would not be surprised to see that continue whether it's the SEC or the Big Ten, I, I think you're going to continue to see a coalesce, the big brands in the sport coalesce. And there's always been this idea of the super conference, like it was going to be something that was started as a new entity. I think the super conferences are going to be the SEC and the Big Ten, and it's going to happen organically. 
And history would, would prove you right there. If you look at, I love the follow the European soccer model because that started off community-based. It was localized. It grew and grew. And a lot of people don't know the Premier League, right, in, in uh, the UK and England is you know, relatively new, early 90s. They got together and said, hey, we have some established teams now that are bigger market, big teams. We should create a league where we only play each other. Why are we spending half of our season playing teams we're way better than? And, and they created the Premier League. That's true of every single major league one, if you will, soccer league in the world. They all started that way, grew, consolidated. The NFL was not originally the NFL, right? And you have to have these things happen. So I think you're absolutely right that you're going to continue to see that consolidation uh and with that let's go into the category ad stuff this is great this is a good one so daniel gray is going to open up we're going to open up with this question how do you grade yourself as an athletic director on your own performance how do you view your performance i mean obviously you have a board that overlooks you a president that's going to actually give your performance but how do you yourself kind of evaluate your own performance well there's not really a formal way to do that so to be honest with you i don't spend a lot of time I mean, I self-evaluate like everybody would. Hey, how could I do this better? How could I do that better? Um, you know, Kent Fox does my evaluation, and that's, you know, I don't have to worry about anybody else's thoughts, but he and, and the UAA board, who I directly report to. And um, so, I, and I, that's not me being flippant, but, you know, part of, part of this job is I can't do my job well if I'm worried what everybody thinks about how I'm doing my job. Because when you do that, your job becomes keeping your job. And that's not my job. My job isn't to keep my job. My job is to do what I think is best for the Gators. And if I do what I think is best for the Gators and it doesn't work out and I lose my job, that's just the rub of the green. I can, I can put my head down on the pillow at night. I did the best I could and move on. And so I try to make sure I'm doing what's best for the Gators by self-evaluating and constantly looking at, okay, what went right? How can we make this better? This is a system we need to strengthen. Uh, this is a personnel grouping we need to work on, whatever. Um, you know, that, that's what I focus on. I don't really – the evaluation of, of, of others, uh, the president of the university and the UAA board, they, they kind of determine what – it's their opinion that matters there and, and – and I don't really go and seek their feedback. They let you know. They will let me know if there's an issue there. So you're waking up every day thinking my job is to steward the resources I have to do what's best, correct, for the program. And along that path, uh, do you do you occasionally reach out to other athletic directors you trust and say, "I've got this situation. What do you think about oh, yeah. it?" Like, how, yeah, you gather information from others yeah. that are in the same scenario daily. Yeah, and and you get you get calls the other way, right? I had a an AD call me at seven thirty this morning about something, ask my thoughts and. I had a phone call a couple hours later with another one saying, hey, have you thought about this? And it wasn't necessarily something we're dealing with, but just as we go through this this crazy dynamic we're dealing with with uh, the current environment, there's a, there's a lot of um, people you lean on throughout this process. We have an unbelievable staff at the UAA, and I've, I work with some really talented people. I rely on them, but I have I talk to people outside the UAA and, and people I know throughout college athletics, people who – are in positions where they're not necessarily out of school, but they're kind of in the cottage industry of college athletics, whether it's, you know, TV networks or media people or what have you that, um, you know, I think that's how you get better is you're always got people who are interesting, who are interested in knowing what's next and in learning, they have a chance because none of us are, are where, where we're going to be tomorrow is not where any of us are today. So something's going to change. You're getting better, getting worse. Right. So, 
Um, there's a, there's a quote by a guy named Eric Hoffer, who I think was uh, some kind of thought leader back in the 60s and 70s that is so appropriate for college athletics, but it's so, it, it, it speaks to all of us, right? It says, uh, in times of profound change, the learners inherit the earth, while the learned are beautifully equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. Wow. And, um, you know, you, you referenced it earlier, James, but we, have some, we may have some, some people in college athletics who are, uh, who are really well equipped to live in the world we used to have, and, but if you're not constantly trying to learn about what's next and what, what's going on and how we get better, um, you're not going to have a chance. So um, I understand part of this job, you, you, get, you get people with opinions and criticisms, and, and, and that's just part of it, right? You can't – it used to bother me. It doesn't really bother me that much. I understand that's part of it. And the, if people didn't have those opinions, uh, a job like this wouldn't be near as much fun because it, it kind of speaks to the passion people have for the University of Florida. Yeah, that's for sure. And in a perfect world, of course, we'd all, you know, give each other positive feedback or positive constructive criticism. In an imperfect world, things are not always handled so well. Uh, Abe Abe Hamza asks, Florida is obviously great at so many sports, and we have prided ourselves in this for a long time. Is it potentially better if we just focused at being good at football and basketball, the primary revenue generating ones, like Abe suggests perhaps other schools are doing, which may or may not be true. But is there any thought maybe we should just go all in on football and basketball and leave the other programs to a lesser focus? Um, I, I, I personally don't like that approach. And I don't think I think the reason I came to the University of Florida is you don't have to take that approach. You, you, we have a row of resources. We're not starving football or men's basketball. So we can go all in on football and men's basketball and still go all in on, on the other sports. And so we have enough re, – we we're, been, we're, you know, we're in a place that has a top five, top ten athletic budget and all the other advantages you have at the University of Florida. You don't have to choose. That's what's so special about this place. And it's been proven in the past, right? It's, it's happened in the past. And we've – you know, you got to continually adapt. Nothing ever stays static. Uh, we've had moments of, of great success and we've stubbed our toe and you, you learn from that and you move forward. But yeah, we can, I, I, to me, that's what makes being a Gator so great is you got a chance to, to win in everything and understanding that football, men's basketball are really important to the overall health of other programs. And the coaches in those, in those other sports recognize that they, they openly talk about it. Hey, we need football to be good. We need men's basketball to be good because they understand that's going to benefit their program as well. Yeah, and that's true of any organization. Like you mentioned, any organization is going to have the cash cows that make a lot of revenue that support other ones that perhaps aren't quite as revenue generating or profit margin successful. But that, that's true in any organization for sure. Uh, and I think a beautiful thing about college sports is what you mentioned, the fact that student athletes can come here and participate in a wide variety of sports, put the Gator logo on, represent their university, and most of them are not going to go pro somewhere, but have those memories competing for their school, for the community for others. It's a, it's a great thing about being a Gator for sure. Several questions here from Kevin, the North Central Florida sports blog and others. A lot of, a lot of people wanted to know about this. What are the plans for the renovation for the swamp? When can we expect that to be done? What are some things to look for? A lot of questions on that one. Right. That continues to, to take a lot of time. The, the planning and, and the studying of that probably, well, admittedly it takes, it's taken longer than I had hoped. We're probably several more months away from, from wrapping it up. And, and the path we're on right now, and this is really um, 
part of this is the there's a lot of interest at the board of trustee level, as you would expect. It's a really important facility on our campus to make sure we're looking at um, different levels of programming. So, in other words, uh, different uh, how involved this is going to be. Right? Are you going to put a new video board up and and a few chairback seats um, and and you know some some new paint, or are you going to do some significant work that's going to cost you know, several times more and take longer. And then what's, what's the ROI on that? You know, how are you, how are you the pro forma that how you're going to pay for that? Cause whatever we do in there, you want it to be a self-generating project, self-funded project. So uh, we're having to, we're, we're getting real in the weeds as far as what those options look like, what it needs to be. The you know, swamp is 92 years old. The original structure was built in 1930. It's been added onto obviously several times over the year. We have a laundry list of areas that we need to address: uh, video boards, audio, yes, lights. Um, <laughs> you know, but but even things that are kind of back a house that the common fan doesn't see, but it impacts them. So, gate structure for ingress, egress, concourse space, concession count, bathroom count. Um, you know, uh, ADA code, uh, handicap accessibility seating. Um, every every single part of that stadium needs to be touched in some significant way, and this is a situation where we want to we want to measure nine times and cut once instead of just starting to to you know go off and do one thing and then realizing two years later you wish you hadn't spent that money because what you really need to do is is a little bit more significant. My you know we put ninety thousand people in there. My guess is we have a we have an infrastructure in that stadium from a concourse and concession and, and restroom standpoint for about 65,000. You know, so you think about just how, how inefficient the, the facility works on game day and it's still great, right? It's still, and you don't want to lose that. The last thing you want to do is lose the intimacy and the, you know, the parts, the, the steepness of the rake of the seats and uh, you know, that makes it really special. But you know, I talk to I talk to fans all the time, and one fan will say, "Man, don't change anything about those lower ball. I know it's tight; we're all in there together, but that's part of what makes it fun." And I have someone else says, "You know, I love my forty yard line seat, but I just want a little more leg room, and I want to <laughs> I'd like a chair back." Yeah. And those two things are in conflict with one another. So um, we've got to we've got to figure out um, what the next fifty seventy years of the swamp is going to look like. So this is not a three or five or ten year kind of project. It, it's it's going to be pretty significant and. Um, the, the goal when we're set, when it's all said and done is it retains its iconic status, but it is a place that, that Gator fans cannot wait to pile into because the way it services them and the home field advantage, it continues to create, create for our teams. You know, one interesting thing just to consider, I didn't realize this till we were in the middle of this study. There's 180,000 square feet of office space in Ben Hill Griffin stadium. And about 90,000 of that is currently used by the UAA. The other 90,000 is used by various university offices. So is that the best uh, use of that space in a facility like that where you're trying to host 90,000 people several times a year? Um, and so if you start to say, okay, no, we, we, we might need to consider doing something else with that space, you've got a relocation issue. So there's just, there's just a lot that goes into it. Um, we are, you know, now that we're finishing up the Hebner Football Training Center, it opened, it's going to open up late July for our team to get into. Um, we've just opened a brand new $8 million soccer lacrosse clubhouse expansion 
uh, over at the Disney Stadium. We're redoing swim locker rooms right now. We put the shade structure up at the tennis courts with some chair back seats. Um, but the the football stadium is is kind of got our full attention right now as far as what's next on the horizon. I know people want to know exactly what this is going to look like. I'm I'm ready to know. We're just not there, and as soon as we're in that position, we'll we'll come and talk about it. I'm very glad to hear you say that you're. It's high on the important list to retain the intimacy. I think looking at again as a baseball fan, looking at what the Yankees did by destroying their historic ballpark, I think is one of the true travesties uh, in sports. And looking at what Fenway did when they were going to do the same thing, and wisely pulled the e-brake, stopped and redid their park, but retained all of the character. And now I think is is well respected as just a, a cathedral of the game. I think that's a well. Uh, it's a, yeah. that's, I'm glad to hear you say. We that actually uh, there's a lady named Janet Marie Smith who oversaw the uh, renovation of Fenway Park, and and, reno- and Fenway wasn't just a renovation. They added a bunch of areas and seats and premium spaces and regular fan spaces as well. Very uh, creatively, I might add. So Janet Marie Smith did that. She's the one who designed Camden Yards back, which was the first kind of retro ballpark in, in the early 90s. And then she has spent the last several years renovating Dodger Stadium. So Fenway and Dodger Stadium are two of the three oldest ballparks in Major League Baseball. And she has kind of like given them a whole new life with her the way she's done this. She also worked on a team that renovated the Rose Bowl about a decade ago. So she has some football experience. She's actually – she still works for the Dodgers. We're actually paying the Dodgers for her to consult with us and be a part of our of – our, uh, programming going forward and kind of help navigate this um so there because that is something that's really important but you know i'm not saying we want this kind of stadium but i i was really impressed with what the dolphins did at hard rock you know they took stadium had a lot of issues and um, they had that same decision to make do we tear it down or do we try to renovate it and you know they i think they were really creative and spent their money really well and did something that made that feel like a totally different place. So is there is there a sweet spot in there where you can bring some modern amenities, some fan comfort, um, and at the same time make it feel like the swamp? Yeah, and I think it's all about context there. Growing up in Miami, you know, what was once Joe Robbie or Poe Player was a characterless NFL stadium that they made have character and Fenway full of character, modernized to the point to where if you turn it on, you don't even notice it. That's what's so great. Like you said, they really did all these great touches, but you don't necessarily know it looks like Fenway. Totally. And I think what you're talking about, I mean, I was at Fenway just a couple years ago. Felt like I had that historic experience, but walking into the bottom part of it, you know, the stuff you don't see on TV, it felt really old, but also it didn't feel like I was like, walking through this like cavern or like all these weird things about it that it, if you flew over the swamp, you would never want to go, what is that place? Like right. you, it has to be like recognizable as a swamp. Yeah. Chip Howard and I actually went up to Fenway last summer uh, with Janet Marie Smith's team and they showed us some areas. Like there's an area in right field where they had this old under the right field bleachers. The concourse was like 15 feet wide. So that kind of sounds like parts of the swamp. Right. Yeah. And, on the other side of that was an alley that was owned by the city, and the other side of the alley was another warehouse building. So the Red Sox bought that warehouse building, converted it into concession space, and then got the city to give them that alley. And that alley became part of the concourse that led to the concession space. And it looks just like it's been there for 100 years. But now they've got a 45, 50-foot concourse with a food plaza and they've just, they took the space, they were really creative and clever with how they found new space. And so 
when you look at 190,000 square feet of office space, 180,000 square feet of office space in the swamp, we have, you know, when you walk down that west side and there's that outer concourse and and then you have to go through those little uh, gate tunnels to get to the inner concourse. The, the only thing really that's prov- making you have to go through those tunnels is we have offices. We have some restrooms and concessions, but we have offices that are taking up space there that we could relocate those offices, open that up, and you've suddenly changed that fan experience on game day there. I love it. I'm, I'm so excited to hear you're working with her because uh, I'm an Orioles fan, born in Baltimore. Camden Yards is my favorite park. Um, that, Look her up. She's a fascinating No, lady. that's amazing. She's yeah. obviously tremendously skilled to work on all those things. All right, that leads into my last question on AD stuff. This is a good one from J.D. Hutchinson. Uh, this is one I've talked about ever since I worked for the UAA, and I know you and I have talked about it. And this is the economics of ticket pricing. And JD is saying, as a kid, I was able to go to games. It feels like now perhaps I'm getting priced out with a family. If the swamp were to shrink or just in general uh, go in a direction where ticket prices are too expensive for a family of four to go, are there any plans to address how to get families that aren't making 100 or 200 grand a year to be able to afford going to a football game rather than just staying at home and watching on television? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's going to be challenging, especially, you know, we're – we're in this uh, high inflationary period, and, and that's going to impact a lot of things that are consumer-facing. F- uh, and our game tickets, obviously, are consumer-facing. The um, what I think it's really important for us to provide what we need in the swamp going forward to find some areas to put some new, different premium spaces. And I know that doesn't answer the question directly, but what the premium spaces allows you to do is um, generate revenue that can help uh, fund the rest of what you're trying to get done. And in a perfect world, those are the spaces that are helping make the difference in any renovation that goes forward, not the the regular reserve seat in the stands. Because you do want to make sure that that you have something that's really special. Um, one of the things that, that I, I think uh, really makes uh, the O-Dome uh, great is is they kept the rowdy reptiles in a spot where it could be really high end premium seat sales, you know on on the on the side court, and you think about it, is there you know there's got to be a way as the swamp evolves that we find a place for every fan at every price point, and uh, you know we want to make sure that kids grow up coming to games at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, and we also want to make sure that. People who who have resources and want the you know really unique seating experiences that they have those opportunities as well and everything in in between right we want a range of options I think that's what you're seeing more and more we are doing one you know there's some interesting things our ticket office in the interim is trying to come up with we obviously have a a a mini pack where you can purchase you know three games uh, season ticket package and at a reduced price point you make sure you're going to get choose I think between either LSU or Utah and then you can you can mix and match the rest of them. There's also something they're trying this year called a flex pass which you can buy a season ticket for every game but you don't know where your seat's going to be until the week of the game. And so it'll be t- depend on on inventory and where the seats are available for that week and it's a reduced price point season ticket. So we're trying to be creative to even in this environment to find ways to give people different pricing options. So then here's the question that I've, I've always wanted to ask. I asked this to Jeremy Foley uh, multiple times back in the day. We had some, some good discussions on it. Why not just view ticket pricing as a loss leader and just simply say, you know what, we're going to have 10% of the stadium where tickets are, I don't know, $5. I'm making a number up. And who cares? Because like you mentioned, it's a nonprofit. 
you're booster funded, you're supported. You could find a way to make that happen in the budget. You could go fundraising for it. Hey, booster XYZ, it's really important for us to get these families in. We're going to price them out. Yes, our premium space helps increase our ROI and subsidize those seats. But look, what if you just, we'll, we'll call it the XYZ gallery, and that's where they're going to sit. And there's going to be 3,000 seats that are always $5 a seat, and it's in your name. Uh, the Masters does this, obviously, with their food prices, which is one of the rave reviews about the Masters every year. Is you can right. get your $5 pimento sandwich. It doesn't matter if it's 2022 or 1980. Any thought to doing something like that? I, I think we're open to any idea, to be honest with you. There's, there's you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I like the idea of, of tickets as loss leader because we have... You know, we have three main ways we, we fund the UAA, and the UAA is self-funded, right? So the university doesn't give us dollars to, to make this thing go, but it's it's uh, media rights, it's uh, donations, and it's ticketing. Now we have sponsorships and everything else, but those three are the big buckets. Ticketing is a is a huge part of what we do to fund. It's probably 25% of, of our revenue. And um, as we talk about all the things that – all these things that people want to see happen, it costs money, and you've got to fund it somehow. So – uh, I th- I think there's a way to do that, but also there, there's there's no question that that we don't want it to be um, like you hear in some of these pro markets where it's it's only corporations buying the tickets and uh, you know that just you price out the normal fan. Corporations don't always have people in those seats. That's not what you're looking for, right? We understand we're in a college setting, great town like Gainesville. We want to make sure that we have the community support and we want to have supportive people and want to bring back alums who want to bring back their family to see games and, and be a part of that. And I think we can continue to do that. Yeah, and having a full stadium in an era where it's really hard to have a full stadium <laughs> makes a huge difference. Could be worth yeah, the creative trade off. All right, Alan, let's talk about some lights. Okay, well, we can skip. You've already mentioned, but <laughs> Wesley, Tyler, and Jason all wanted to. And like know if we're going to have LED lights in the stadium if at some point in the future. Yeah. Of course, right? When the current, you know, the current lights still have uh, usefulness, and um, that'll be a part of whatever significant significant project we have at the Swamp. The light light package, I'm sure, will be a part Everyone's of that. Everyone's jealous of those Georgia and Alabama red lights yeah. that go off, I guess. Um, last question in this category here. Um, go Browns, whoever that is. Uh is the football team continue going to continue to wear throwback uniforms every year for homecoming? Is that in the plans? That uh, that is not in the plans for this coming year. Oh man, disappointment um, abounds. I think. I, well, not that it, it's not gone forever, but um, Coach Napier is uh, a little more simplistic with his uniform approach. Um, you'll see a lot of what we call the traditional orange helmet, blue jersey, white pants. And I like uh, that. I like that a lot. He. Uh, He'll have some variations on the road, as we have traditionally done. But um, we've not gotten rid of the throwbacks. We just don't have plans to wear them this year. Fair enough. I know there will be some black uniforms on the horizon. That made every year we could ask this question. Yes. Like, we don't know the, we don't know the answer to these right. questions. But I know that he said officially we will be wearing black uniforms for our Veterans Day game. And that apparently has uh, riled everyone up. That that's uh, Yes, that is something that Billy has wanted to do. And, and we're working on trying to execute that families have a lot going on let ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents try three new brainy chews to help you focus chill out or get energized find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com that's o-l-l-y.com these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Scott, let's talk about a subject that most people think of when they think of being an athletic director, and that is hiring or firing a coach or dealing with things that occur with coaches This has been, in my opinion, I said this in the podcast, a pivotal year for you because so many things have happened. If this were a movie, this is the middle where you have all the climactic points. You have all the things going on. You have newness. You have oldness. You have coaching decisions that haven't worked out for whatever reason. Uh, There's been criticism. There's been praise. There's excitement. There's there's sadness. What are some of your reflections given the experiences you've had in this past year as an AD? Well, it's hard to put that in one succinct answer. Obviously, every situation is a little a little different, unique. There are different reasons why coaches move on or, or you know, need to move on. Um, you know, we had we had a couple coaches that, uh, you know, weren't fits. We had uh, a coach that um, – and Dan that I just think uh, had gotten off track in a way that, that was not going to be able to recover. And – and then Mike obviously made the decision to, to leave on his own. And so every situation is different. One thing that um, you learn as you go through the process, you know, this kind of goes back to the question earlier about how do you self-evaluate. There, there's three things that coaches, in my opinion, need to do to be successful. One is they've got to be able – they have the, have the ability to evaluate and attract the right people for their team, and that is both players and, and coaches – and staff, uh, then they need to be able to lead that group. You know, you want them to be authentic. You want them to have uh, discipline, accountability, be able to set the path forward for everybody and get everybody on board to accomplish the mission. And the third thing is they need to be able to put their team in the best position possible to be successful. And that last category, I have probably made the mistake overvalued that. I don't want to say make a mistake, but I've overvalued that in the past. The 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 you know, X's and O's schematic piece of that. And it's very important, but I I, I don't think it is as important as those first two. Can you attract the right people and can you lead them? Do you have the um, the authority to lead them? And 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 the only people who can give you that authority are the people you're leading. Right. So do you have the ability to walk in a room and build credibility with that group where they give you the authority to lead them? And that is such an important piece. And so, you know, we'll, we'll find out. But I think we got some individuals that we hired this year that will be really good in those areas. And then with regards to contract extensions, a lot is made of this. It seems like there's been a few ill-timed or unfortunately timed or unlucky even perhaps contract extensions yeah any comments on on what goes into that yeah you know sometimes it's you know um because of recruiting sometimes you're trying to do something for a coach from recruiting space you often will um when that's the situation you'll you'll make the uh the actual financial commitment from the university reflect be reflected in that 
you know, so Coach Mullen, after his second year, two straight New Year's Six Bowl games, I told him toward the end of that year, hey, we're going to we're gonna extend you after this year. He had six-year deals down to four years, had two good years. Felt like it was that was the right thing to do, send the right message. And we had two things happen. He had uh, we had an NCAA issue pop up where he was uh, in a room with a head with a high school coach out in Seattle, and the head the head coach brought a recruit in, uh, a recruit in the room for 15 minutes and caught it on tape. And three different schools got caught by that same coach doing that same thing. And um, Texas A&M and Notre Dame were also caught up in that in that deal. And so we're in the middle of that, and I just I didn't feel like that was a, the right message to send while that was going on to to offer an extension. I told him that, and I said, hey, the next when we get this thing behind us and this is all adjudicated, we'll do it then. And that was after – ended up being after his third year. And one thing – important thing to remember there is he, he got a raise, but the, the buyout amount, so the actual uh, exposure to the UAA, didn't change with the new contract. So that remained flat and – that was obviously something that was negotiated in there. So um, every situation you look at, like that was just one example. So, you know, the contract has, uh, we're going to support our coaches until they're not our coaches. And that's, you know, we're not going to have, uh, there, it's hard to be halfway in with somebody to be halfway um, in their corner. You, you, you know, you got to, we're going to protect the UAA financially but if someone still has the, the the title head coach, we're gonna we're gonna support them and we're gonna do everything we can to help them be successful. And if the time comes where they don't need to be here, we're gonna make sure we have um, we're gonna protect the UAA and be able to go get the next person. So just in in this kind of vein as well, as you think about hiring people, it's a question from Ken Phelps. You've talked about like hiring to fit the culture at UF. So you've done that both like internally and externally. Like, could you just expound a little bit of that? What kind of characteristics are you thinking about when you kind of think to hire to fit like you asked? Yeah. Todd Golden asked that question. Um, he didn't ask it the same way, but but the way he asked it was, what are the other coaches at UF like? Hmm. And uh, a member of our staff said, you know, they're, they're highly competitive, um, in, have integrity, highly competitive people who want to win badly, who are normal people. And, you know, I, I kind of like that description. You know, they, they, they want to win, but they're, they're not egomaniacs. They're not jerks. They're, you know, they're good people. They're normal people. Uh, I like the old uh, Greg Popovich quote when asked about what, who they like to hire at the Spurs. He said they like to hire people who have gotten over themselves. So I, I think that's kind of the culture you want. You want someone that understands it's not all about them and that they're going to be uh, a a part of a bigger organization, an important part, but they're going to be just a part of the organization and they're going to be expected to lead with authenticity and, and to take care of the people that they're responsible for. And that's, you know, that, so that's that culture, right? It's, you know, that's one of the things that um, when I was uh, in the SEC before I came to Florida and had spent years competing against the university or being at schools competing against the university of Florida and, and the Gators, you know, have a lot of success relative to everybody else in the league. But when you interacted with the people who worked here, there was never an arrogance. There was never a sense of entitlement. There was always a down-to-earth quality. And it's one of the things that has always attracted me to this place. And I think that's, you know, you end up getting who you are. You get you attract people that fit your your culture, hopefully. And um, that's, that's really important. Yeah, and is it possible – to identify people who 
don't necessarily fit your culture ahead of time. We obviously had two hires in women's basketball, women's soccer, where I imagine we would have thought they fit the culture yeah. and things don't happen. Is it is it possible to always identify that? Do you look back and think I could have done something different to identify that? Or sometimes there's just scenarios where people are, are free agents and they can they can do things that are not foreseeable. Per it's se. yeah, you try to get as much information as possible and you talk to as many people as possible. And and that can help inform the decision, but you really never know how somebody's going to be in that environment until they get into the environment. And you you know the stress hits or there's a challenging day and you kind of you kind of start to see uh, how somebody really is and it that's it's not a perfect science right there's this this is um hiring is you know uh, i don't know of any ad this this bad a thousand it's it you know you can you can swing and miss real easily um but the there's that that is definitely the focus and and i think you know, you, you learn from experiences and you learn more from your bad experiences than you do from, from your good experiences sometime. And, and, uh, unfortunately there's been some opportunities to learn in, in the past couple of years. And I'm, I'm really excited about this group we have in. I know you say that every time you have a group, but I do think that we got some, some special individuals who have joined the UAA in the last year and, uh, have taken over these, these leadership positions. And I've, I've, you know, they, uh, the hard part is still to come. You know, we'll get to see what they're like in different environments, but I haven't seen anything in their time here that makes me think that that uh, the, anything but they're going to be a perfect fit. Yeah, failure is a, is a great teacher. It's the fastest way to learn. But also I think something you said there matters. We live in a society that tends to underestimate, underappreciate, overcriticize, whatever you want to say, people's ability to see the future. And I love war documentaries. Band of Brothers is one of my favorites. Yeah. But that displays really well what happens when someone's placed in leadership and all of a sudden just cannot handle that certain position. And oftentimes there is no way to know that. Their entire history would not necessarily tell you they couldn't handle it. But when a new experience occurs or the pressure is too high, they cannot handle it. But you often just cannot know that until that situation occurs. And I think that's often lost on people in general. Is sometimes it is our fault if you, hey, there were there are warning signs everywhere. We shouldn't right. have done this. Other times that person gets in a new environment that they just are not suited for and they shrink from the moment. And in that case, that's not always, right, the selection uh, committee or, or hiring person's fault. All right, you did mention something here that I think is really exciting. Obviously, to me, I'm very analytical. It seems like with your hiring of both Napier and Golden, there's an extreme lean into analytics. Is that accurate or is that just maybe happenstance for the moment? I, I, the lean is into... Um the starting with the person kind of people they are you know the the next thing you look for when you have somebody who has a person of character who who has uh you know all the personality traits and and the character traits that you like you want someone who's really smart and so i think there's just more and more people of this coaching generation who have a high intellect that are leaning into the analytic piece so it's it it's probably not a straight direct line to the analytics, but it's an indirect line because of how important the, the, the intellect and the, the ability to be problem solving and to look for advantages in every issue. I, I love the analytics myself. You know, I, when I was a teenager, I used to buy the Bill James baseball abstract. I don't even know if y'all know what that is, but yeah. it was this huge volume that was kind of hard to, it was, it was really laborious to read, but I, you know, it was like one of the first, um, 
commercial attempts to, to look at baseball from an analytical standpoint. So I've always enjoyed that side of, the, of sport. Um, but you can't, I don't think, I think you make a mistake if you just hire a coach because they're an analytical type person. But if you can get um, someone like a Billy Napier who is, you know, incredibly genuine and has incredible work ethic and discipline and also sees the value in looking for every tiny advantage through the analytics, you've got a, you've got a pretty compelling package there. And I think Todd obviously is the same way. Todd may be a little bit more um, noteworthy for that because he's a younger guy and he's, you know, basketball has some uh, more probably transparent examples of how it gets used in game type settings. But, um, you know, you know, Billy's comment, the whole thing, the, the scared money don't make money, that came from uh, uh, going for it on fourth down three different times in the first half that was totally an analytic play, right? So that has, even though that's that's kind of like become a social media meme, that had its whole basis on him understanding the, the, the hidden value that others may not be recognizing. And that's a great phrase from professional poker that came around a long time ago in that exact scenario. If I know my odds are to win 70%, I have to put my money in and take that chance every time, but three times out of 10, I will lose. Right. But I cannot be afraid of those three out of 10. And, and the story, for those who haven't dug into the history, I think they were playing Arkansas State in the game. That was a halftime interview where he used that that quote. And they had gone for it three times on fourth down, I think, in score in the red zone. And the first two times, they didn't get anything out of it. Hmm. And the third time, they did. And it gave them a lead. And so that was – the impetus for him used he got asked the question why you, you know you finally went through you kind of it finally worked out and he used that quote i love it okay last question here so maybe give us one of your favorite moments that you've been here at florida something that's like stuck with you oh wow to think about uh you know you're all you always go to the uh the climactic sports example you know, i think of the chris chioza shot in 2017 yeah. i mentioned langworthy's home run that one you know, the the year that Langworthy hit, hit the home run, that was against Auburn in a Super Regional to send the Gators to the College World Series. But like two weeks earlier, um, uh, softball had hit a walk-off yeah. in Game 3 of a Super Regional against Texas A&M to send them to the College World Series. Th- those were pretty special. Uh, the uh, uh, Tyree Cleveland's catch against Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, that that one's pretty memorable. So you go to these, you know, sudden victory kind of things for some reason when you think about that. But, you know, this is outside of the sports realm, just, you know, the, 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 the people that you meet here and the people who love this university and everyone is, is such a diverse fan base, is such a diverse um, university population that, you know, there's this is it's hard to understand. It's hard to imagine there's a better place to work in college athletics. Um, you know, we get reminded of it daily, seemingly in the spring because the Gators win a lot and the weather's awesome, right? So it all is it's kind of the perfect combination of why it's great to live in Gainesville. But um, we see it all the time. And at, at, I was uh, down with the Gator Booster Board meeting this week down in Sarasota. People have contributed to our program for a long time and, and they run, you know, they help oversee the Gator Boosters program. And, um, you know, they, they've all had their own unique stories of what it means to be a Gator and why it's important to them. And it's, it's, I enjoy listening to those. And I would say sitting right here in front of you for this, uh, thank you for the time and coming in. Obviously, there's a million things you could be doing. And also, same thing I said about Mick, I'll say about you. It, it's easy to see your multiple years in now that your passion is not dwindled. 
right? There's been highs and lows. And it would be easy to just say, you know, that there's a lot that comes with this job. Perhaps I don't wake up every morning and think I'm loving stewarding these resources. This is a lot. Uh, but I see no sign of the joy and the passion and the drive and the process to keep improving um, gone from you at all, which I think is something that should be noted in a world where it's easy. It's easy to get whatever you want, too high or too low or wherever. Uh, and, you know, I think it's great that we have somebody, and we've said this often on the podcast, that is so passionate about the entire culture of the university beyond just winning. Winning right. matters, right? But there's a whole culture thing that matters a lot. And uh, I want to applaud you for that. And thank you again for coming and spending time with Alan and I. It's always super fun to have you on the podcast. Well, I appreciate it. And I, hey, it, uh, I love what I do. I, you know, they say if you love what you do, you, uh, you never work a day in your life. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, we've had some unique challenges and, and, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you run into something and, and you get your nose bloodied, you, you know, you got, you got to figure it out, right. You got to, you got to set your jaw and, and get back after it. And, uh, there's, there are so many opportunities at the university of Florida. We've, we've had, we haven't had a great year by our standards, you know, football wasn't what we wanted it to be. Men's basketball didn't make the tournament. Um, you know, baseball is going to get in a regional. We don't think who knows if they'll host. That's usually the position they're in. You can go down the list. We've, we've had some wonderful things. Women's indoor track and field won their first national title in 30 years. And, you know, we won four SEC championships and, and men's tennis last year. Men's tennis won national championship last year. Gymnastics finished second this year, came really close on, on at the national championship and won their fourth straight SEC. There's so many good things that happen here, but. I'm just, I don't know if I've ever been this excited about a collection of, of head coaches, top to bottom, across the board, without exception. I don't know that I've ever been as excited about where we are from a facility standpoint across the board. And, and you know, I, I do think, even though that's a chaotic time with name, image, and likeness and transfer portal and all the new things we got going on, the, it's my belief that we're really well positioned at the University of Florida to, to benefit from some of those things. And so I'm, uh, I'm I'm excited to uh, watch this school year wrap up with the spring sports, catch our breath for a little bit in the month of July, and then uh, get back at it in August. Love it. Can't wait. We'll be uh, watching and obviously breaking it down all fall. Thanks, Scott, so much. Thanks, guys. Go Gators. And that's going to just about do it for us here on this episode. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. On our next episode, which will occur after SEC Media Days in July, I will answer the question for Dean Zobanakis, who wants to know which better, his humming, his hummus recipe or Colton Dahl's cookie recipe. And uh, that's right. Both of them are friends, and they had sent me their personal, longstanding family recipes. I will answer that question as we will follow SEC Media Days. Um, and on top of which, there should be a lot more to discuss because, Alan, every time we take a break, it seems like there's just more and more news. There truly has not been an offseason this year. So June normally is a nothing burger. Probably not. We'll probably have all sorts of crazy things to discuss. Always is true. Any final thoughts, Alan? No, that was just really cool. Getting a chance to do that interview. I, th I think I'm always amazed that he's willing to give us the kind of time he is. Scott Strickland, that is. And yeah, really thankful to been able to have that conversation. Yeah, it's really great. And we hope you all enjoyed that. Obviously, Scott, you know, making a couple hours to come hang out. We think it's great that the athletic director wants to be visible once the, uh, the, the impact, impactful people of the program to know what's going on. He wants to know what the fans want to know. And he really wants to be involved with every aspect. So hopefully this gave you a chance to get to know him 
a little bit better. As always, you can send us any feedback, any comments on this episode and others to us on social media or our email address. That's all for now. We'll see you in July. Have a great start to your summer. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.